Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week on the show, every Thursday, a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts and, and sometimes other stuff they're involved in also. My guest today, after working for a decade in documentary film, her current job is in communications at the National Institute of Health. She does her best to help new knowledge about health make it out to the world where it can be useful. She's also a, a family person. She's a proud mother of a son who trains in Japanese kendo and creates anime music videos. She's also a proud wife of almost 25 years. Oh, and she's also been studying martial arts for over 25 years. Please welcome my guest today, Miss Dana Sheets. How are you doing today, Dana? I'm doing good, Brian. Thanks for having me. Good. I'm glad we were able to do this. I know I, I actually tracked down Dana through a website focusing on women in the martial arts and, and thought it sounded like an interesting guest, and I'm glad we're able to do it. So what we do with all my guests, we go back to the beginning. I want to know what first piqued your interest or where that first sparked from, that first, uh, you know, what made you want to first study martial arts? Sure. It's funny because, you know, growing up, there weren't a whole lot of women martial artists in movies or on film, right? <laughs> exactly. It wasn't a big thing in the in the 70s and 80s. And though I will say that as a kid, you know, um, Hong Kong cinema was always on the TV on Sunday afternoons. And um, what used to surprise me about it is that, you know, it was mostly men. But every now and then the fight would break out in a house. And for some reason, mom and grandma always knew martial arts. And they would suddenly bust out in fighting moves in the middle of these movies with no context, no explanation. It was just as if in Hong Kong, all women did martial arts magically. Of course. Somehow. <laughs> um, and, um, and, you know, there was the usual like bionic woman with uh, Lindsay Wagner, right? Or yep. Linda Carter on Wonder Woman. But there weren't, there weren't really Western women martial artists. Um, maybe if you stretch it a bit, Erin Gray in Buck Rogers, but she wasn't very good at it, right? She, she did the role well but the fight choreography was lacking. Yep. And so, you know, when my brother went off to college, he actually, um, he started training Matsubayashi Shorinru. And so Chad Sheets is now, he's now a seven stone. He, he continued with it. And so I thought, well, maybe, maybe when I go to college, I'll, I'll train martial arts because my dad had been a Marine. And of course he was all interested in teaching me escape moves, right? Get out of this wrist grab, get out of this bear hug. I think he was trying to, you know, protect me from the world in, in, in some small way. And so I did it when I went to college, 1991, I joined the Ball State Judo Club. Nice. Um, and that's really where I started training. And so what was it about it? Maybe maybe those first couple of classes, what what drew you in? What made you want to keep doing it? You know, judo is great fun, right? You like do calisthenics, physical activity and stretching, and then you grab people and try to throw them onto the ground. And so it's kind of just a big game of roughhouse. Yep. 
And, you know, we used to wrestle in Rough House a lot as kids growing up and it just, it felt very familiar, right? And it was a great way to meet people because I didn't, I didn't go to college with a posse of friends in my back pocket. And so I think the camaraderie was fantastic. Even at that time in the 90s, it was a mixed gendered club, right? There were men and women training together very collegially. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in judo, the worst thing that could happen at the time was you might get choked out and you might pass out, you know? And there wasn't, as there was more of an emphasis on throwing them and less of an emphasis on the locks and breaks that has come up since, you know, the mixed martial arts has overtaken the world. Right. But again, it was just, it was a bunch of people who all were having a blast together, you know, doing a physical activity where you didn't really win or lose. They call it playing judo, right? I mean, it's just really a, a let's all just try to get better kind of mentality. And I enjoyed it a lot. What do you remember about your first instructor? Uh, my first instructor, unfortunately, don't remember his name, okay. but he was... He told us he was the son of the Korean Olympic team, judo team. So he, I mean, he told us stories of how like, you know, when they were training judo in Korea, they would have to um, do break falls off of a six foot step ladder, you know, (laughs) luckily, (laughs) right. Luckily, he didn't make us do any of those things, but um, he was just, he was really, you know, he, he really knew his stuff, right? He was really confident in what he was teaching. And, and, and I just, I remember how he was, he treated everybody the same, you know, like everybody's going to get the workout. Everybody's going to do the following. Everybody's going to do the sparring and we're just going to all do this together. Which was great, you know, because nobody was left off to the side. And how long did you stick with that? Um, so I did judo all the way through undergraduate. And then I lived in France. I did a study abroad year and mm-hmm. I did judo in France. And that was fun. Because, okay. again, a great way to meet people because mm-hmm. I didn't know anybody when I went to France as a foreign exchange student. And then it, I got accepted to film school in Washington, D.C. Um, and so I moved from Indiana to Washington, D.C. And uh, and so I wanted at that point to try a striking art, uh, to punch and kick something, because um, I felt like I had a gap. I had a good ground game. I could knock people down, but um, I didn't know how to hit or kick anybody. And so I went visiting schools, and um, there were a few that, you know, one of the deciding factors for me was whether there was another woman in sight in the school. <laughs> And I ended up at the Washington Karate Academy. Robert Kaiser was teaching at the time. Okay. And it was the same kind of thing, right? He, there were men and women on the floor. Everybody got treated the same. And it wasn't, let's see who can break somebody else faster kind of game. It was really that kind of same collegial, hard training. Don't get me wrong, hard training, right. but collegial and positive, you know? Okay. I definitely want to get into the karate school, but I want to back up just a little bit. First of all, what rank did you get to in judo? And was did you notice any major differences training in France versus in the U.S. other, other than the language, obviously? Yeah, so this is the funny thing. I had such an enjoyable time training judo mm-hmm. that in those five years, I never tested for rank. Really? Really. Wow. Um, and part of it was that at the time you had to join two associations and pay two annual dues to test. Okay. (laughs) So I would have had to have joined the U.S. Judo Association and some international judo association. Yep. And I was paying for college myself. Broke college student, yep. (laughs) And so I'm like, no, I'm good. I don't need to test. I'm happy training. Okay. And they're like, but you could test. I'm like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, And so I just really never bothered. And that it was not required. Like I didn't have to test to be training. It was a club. You know, it was just right. for fun. Um, and then the biggest difference when I got to France was they, a lot of them had done judo since they were kids. There's much more of a judo culture in France at the time than there was in central Indiana. And so they were just, just some of them were just so much better. I was like, ooh, <laughs> maybe it's good I still have a white belt because <laughs> uh, they don't expect much from me. 
So then back up to DC, what, first of all, what style of karate was that at the school you joined? Yeah. So it's Weichiru karate. Um, and that is an Okinawan karate style. And it's, um, it's mostly a stand up style of hitting and kicking though. There's, there's takedowns and throws and it's, it's a funny little system, right? It came over from China with like three empty handed kata. Um, one of them being the, the well-known Samshin kata for Okinawan karate. And that's it. It was three kata and body conditioning and fighting. That was the whole system. No weapons. No one step sparring drills, nothing. And then in the 60s, so that they could be recognized by Japan to be an actual system, they added like five katas and these one step sparring drills and kata interpretation things. But it didn't, it wasn't originally part of the system. It was just kind of fascinating. And what drew me to it was I could see the grappling, right? With my judo eyes, I looked at this punching and kicking system and I'm like, oh yeah, punch, punch, kick, throw down. Or this is where you sweep them, or this is where, you know, they would fall. And so to me, it was very complimentary to what I'd already been training. So I was, I was pretty excited by that. Okay. And did you test for rank at that school? Not yeah, actually. Um, so I am still at the Washington Karate Academy here these many years later. So I started there in 96 okay. and I've been there now for almost going on 25 years. And at the moment I hold the six degree black belt rank. So do you remember your very first test at that school? Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> So, you know, there's this, this magical, mythical thing in your mind about testing for black, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what it boils down to is that you really don't sleep or eat much for the hours leading up to it. And my test was in the evening. It would have been a lot better if it was in the morning because, man, I was a ball of nerves all day. And the tests in Weichiever are not, you know, some systems have what they call spirit tests where you yep. go like run two miles and do a thousand push-ups and then do all these other things. And Weichiever is not like that at all. You do Sanchin, which is an empty-handed form. Then you do your highest empty handed form. You do a little conditioning. You do a partner set. You answer some history questions. You fight and you're done. So there's, there's a little more pressure on each element, right? Because there's not very many of them. And if you get any of them wrong, then you're, it's almost like 20% of the test, you know? So yeah, it was, I mean, we were in the dojo. It, there were other people testing for first, second, and I think third degree black belt that day. And it was, what was funny about it was my teacher was a very collegial, supportive, positive guy, right? Still is. And, but that day he didn't smile. He didn't <laughs> smile at anybody. In fact, he had a grumpy cat face on. Like he looked grumpy and we're like, do something wrong, doing it wrong. And years later, years later, he's like, well, you know, when you test, you need to stand on your own. You don't need to look at me for support that day. So I'm not supportive then nice. so that you can do realize that your performance that day is your own. <laughs> what about good to know that beforehand? <laughs> no, right now he's, he's, I will say he's, you know, he's maybe loosened up a little bit since, but he's still that day where I was, I was certain that I would do like, I, I don't know. Did I like do a gaffe? Or did I make a social faux pas? Or you just grumpy. <laughs> so what, what drew you to teaching and, and what level, what belt level did you start teaching at? So I, I have always been drawn to teaching. I come from a long line of teachers. My grandparents taught at university. My mother was an educator. And so I started helping uh, teach the kids classes when I was at Greenbelt. So I'd been there about six, seven months. Okay. And um, I really never stopped. I kept teaching the kids program for several years. And then um, round about uh, 2011, my teacher actually became injured. In an accident and wasn't able to teach. 
And so at that time, several of us stepped forward to keep running classes because we wanted to keep having our dojo, right? Um, and we assumed he would get better and come back at some point. And so um, I was probably, I think I, I think I was a third degree black belt then, which is really a little early to start teaching, honestly, right? Um, in, in Okinawan martial arts, usually you don't start teaching, you know, till fifth or sixth degree. Oh, wow. Um, but necessity is the mother of invention, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, and so we kept the school open. We kept training. And eventually um, he had made the decision to stay in New York. And so with another uh, woman who was a senior student in the dojo, her name was Donna Weeding. Uh, we purchased the dojo from him wow. and um, decided at that point to, to make a go of it, to try and keep it open. So thinking back then to Greenbelt, when you first started you know, helping teach kids classes, what do you think has changed about your teaching style from Greenbelt through 6-3 Black? I, I am much more patient because I am <laughs> a little bit older and, and a little bit less concerned about the moment. Um, and I have a lot more perspective and I have a lot more knowledge than I did then. So I think one of the things I understand better now is that the student is central to the training, not the teacher, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to get in a situation. As, and this was something that Rory Miller put really well. He's, he's a guy in, out there in the world that I admire a lot. He wrote a book called Meditations on Violence. If a student's point of training is to please the teacher, then it is possible that they will not actually view themselves as owning their own training. And so I've tried, the more I teach, the more I try to make it less about me teaching and more about what they are doing. And then the other thing I learned was that Americans aren't Okinawans, right? They they don't like just standing there and imitating you. (laughs) It doesn't make them happy. They want to know why. But it's also important to not tell people what is the right way, but to invite them to try different ways because, you know, I'm five, three. And so what works really well for me is not possibly going to work great for somebody who's six, four and the other way around. And so karate is a very personal discipline, right? And that there's some underlying principles, but you got, you got to make the training work for you. Otherwise to me, kind of like, what's the point, you know, if it, if it doesn't actually work, why are we doing it? Oh, definitely. 100%. What would you say makes your style different from others? You know, someone who's never seen your style or never seen Okinawan karate, and maybe they're in a different style of martial arts. What do you think makes it different from other styles? Yeah, that's a great question. Is that what what does make Weichiru different? And a big part of what makes it different is the body mechanics you can't see. And this is what has fascinated me in my training for the last, I don't know, 15 years, is that a punch looks like a punch, right? But when you look at someone punching, You don't know if they're using only their upper body, if they're using their core in their upper body, if they're using their legs, their core in their upper body. And then for Weichiru, do they still have the planet behind them? Are they they pushing with the strength of the planet? And we call that root in martial arts, right? Your ground connection. And and Weichiru is is a little bit obsessed with this idea of root, but it's actually kind of fading away in the wider world of martial arts. You know, people are so dynamic and athletic and explosive that this ability to connect to the ground and stay connected to it and use it and not just push off of it is is really a, a fancy trick. And it, it's not really that hard, but the only way to learn it really and truly is hands-on. You can't get it from a video. <laughs> and the other thing I think about Weichiru is, is that it's just, in a way, very simple, direct, and quite brutal. Um, it's not really built for sparring, but people who do Weichiru do well in sparring because you know, they do a ton of conditioning and they can take a good hit and they get very explosive. Okay. But the, the art itself is very straightforward demolishing of people's soft and tender points. <laughs> okay. And I think that um, 
you know, a lot of that, that old school training of, of training with open hands, not closed fists, mm-hmm. right? You're hitting very specific places on the body. You're expected to learn and know some anatomy to go along with that. And it creates this sort of burden of responsibility, if you will, right? right. You know, if you're going to teach people how to actually hurt people in a way where they're not just going to get a bruise and not going to get up the next day, then you have to ask yourself, you know, is, is this the right thing to be sharing with just anybody? And of course, before the internet, that was a closely guarded secret. <laughs> and now, you know, you can look up Navy SEAL killing techniques with a Google search. But it's still the idea of the mindset that goes with the training. And what I say to people at work is like, you know, no matter how spirited this conversation is, if you're not swinging a two by four at me, we're okay. You know, <laughs> because the training gives you that kind of perspective of, of what's the difference between a passionate conversation and somebody who's actually trying to take your head off. So you mentioned sparring a little bit now. Does your style, your organization, do they compete at all? Do they do tournaments or is it more almost pure self-defense? It is both. Um, There are schools that have a very strong competition focus. And when karate was, um, you know, coming up as part of a exhibition sport in the Olympics, Mm -hmm. you know, Okinawa views itself as the birthplace of karate and they were super excited. And um, they had people on the national team, right? They had people compete and get medals. Nice. And there's a lot of schools that have a heavy arm to that, to, to competitive spark. Our school never did. My teacher never really had that focus. He said, you're welcome to go to tournaments. It's just not my main focus. I won't prevent you and I'll teach you what I know that are good. Because he had done tournaments back in the day, back when they were more full contact right? Um, before there was much safety to them. But we at our school, you know, we trained to train. And the the training and the discipline is the ultimate reason, more so than the self-defense or the competition. And so I've I've done a couple of tournaments. I it, it was okay, but it, it's not what makes me want to go back to the dojo and train some more. It's not how I did in competition, but more how I did against myself. And that's perfect. I mean, I'm the same way. I'm not a I've done one tournament in my life. I'm just I'm not a fan of it. It's you know, I have no problem training other people for them. I've just, it's mm-hmm. just never, and I have nothing against competition. I've done other competitive sports and stuff. It's just for martial arts. It's just not my interest. So, so now over the years, have, have you, you know, you started with judo and then moved into Okinawa karate. Have you delved into any other styles at all? Yeah, not deeply. For okay. a couple of years, I got fascinated by um, the stuff called fast defense, fear, adrenal stress training, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, people dress up in what they would call these bullet men suits and they come barreling at you and then you can hit them full force. Yep. And that's also great fun. Um, <laughs> um, and it also is a chance to see yourself under more pressure, right? Because in a, in a tournament or inspiring situation, there's still the concept of partnership. Right. Right. But in the bullet man training, it wasn't really partnership. It was more you can just see if you can knock their block off and you can really let loose. And they encourage you to go absolutely full power with full intent because they're, you know, their heads are kind of locked down in the suit and they supposedly can't get concussions. And they're not going to get a concussion from me. I'm five, three, even on my best day. But that was really interesting because what happens to you when you actually are in a full adrenaline dump and you're still trying to do all the things you think you know how to do. And my biggest takeaway from that is balance is shaky under full adrenaline. And so it was really interesting because my, my system isn't that big on kicks. You know, we have kicks. Most of the ones in Kata are, are below the waist. And after having wandered around shaking with adrenaline in me, I kind of get it, you know, <laughs> that um, it's really impressive to me if people can pull off big high kicks under a big adrenaline dump because, oof, it, it definitely felt risky to me after that training. 
I know my first experience with uh, in-person experience with Okinawan karate, we, uh, my, my core system is traditional Taekwondo. I've trained in a lot of other styles and my Taekwondo instructor puts on a big tournament every year. And when he first started doing it, he actually, there was a local uh, Okinawan Ryuku Kempo school that team, mm. teamed up. So we did the Taekwondo side and then they actually set up and did a Bogu tournament. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. Um, armored, tra- yeah. armored sparring. Yeah, yeah, basically full contact with like kendo gear on and stuff. And that was, he, he was with us for about four or five years and he decided to stop doing it. And then we added a grappling session instead. But, but man, I, I didn't do the, I did the Bogu in class, but I never did it in the tournament. But man, watching that, that's hardcore. <laughs> I actually saw one guy get knocked out through that metal headgear. So, oof. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what you see is how often people fall down, right? Yep. When you go full power, people hit the ground a lot. Exactly. Um, like so, I said, yeah. fun to watch. I know. And like I said, I did it in class and that was, that was bad enough. I mean, the, the, my one friend who, who knocked the guy out, he just didn't, he was a big guy. Didn't know his own strength. He was like, you know, six, four, probably 240, 250 pounds. And they, they wore the Bogu helmet, you know, full protective mm-hmm. gear and then boxing gloves. And yeah, with full size boxing gloves, he knocked a guy out with one punch. So <laughs> like, I'm glad I'm not sparring him today. <laughs> yes, that was a gift. <laughs> but like I said, fun to watch. Very fun to watch. So mm-hmm. yeah. And then the only other stuff I've dabbled in is really, uh, I, I've done a couple of like uh, Arnie's classes, you know, oh. the Filipino martial arts stuff, just okay. because it's, it's so much fun to see people attacking from different angles and with weapons because my system doesn't have them. Yeah, definitely. And that, that sort of opened my, up my mind a bit and reminded me of, you know, all the different ways you can dance around the human body and try to hit it. Right. And then the last place where I've spent time is just my martial arts supposedly is half hard, half soft, and nobody can agree on what half soft means. And <laughs> I've spent a fair amount of time trying to unpack what it was that made internal arts special and sacred and secret worthy out coming out of China and how well or poorly that got translated in Okinawa and then how well or poorly that got translated to the West. And it's been a really fun and fascinating trip for the last 15 years. There's a blog by a guy named Mike Sigmund who writes about internal martial arts and mm-hmm. internal power and is trying to give away all the secrets if anybody wants to go pick them up. But it's been hugely helpful for me to help me understand why were the exercises built that way? Or, okay, if you there's this thing in Okinawan karate called a chishi, right, which is a stone hammer, which is a, a hunk of concrete on the end of a long stick and you tilt it side to side. It looks like a wrist exercise, right? Okay. But it's not really a wrist exercise. It's supposed to supposed to use your breath to help tie together your whole body, and it's supposed to train these long power chains inside the body that run through the fascia and connect. And um, you know, Western medicine is just now catching up to the fact that like fascia has nerves in it and it innervates and it talks, and it and it's something that you can you can consciously learn a bit about through your training. And the Chinese had that worked out, you know, two thousand years ago. And then what's left is hold the chishi and strengthen your wrist. Right. Hold this heavy hammer and twist it side to side and your wrist and grip will get stronger. And it never felt like enough. Right. Mm-hmm. Like why, why were people satisfied with just three forms and to keep training that for 50, 60 years of their life. And so that's been really interesting for me to learn more about and then share with people because it, it, it makes all this stuff work without having to be so big and so muscularly strong. You can tie your own body together better Then it, it, it it's amazing. What can happen? And you kind of answered my, my next question because I know a lot of people who study traditional karate, it is, you know, empty hand. But I know some of those tools do incorporate weapons. And you obviously, you know, said your school doesn't do that. That's why you, you learn that from some other stuff. So that was kind of one of my other questions. So other than that, so your, your school doesn't have weapons at all then? 
No, my school doesn't have weapons. Okay. And I, I, as a daughter of a Marine, I grew up shooting. Okay. Right? So for me, it's sort of like, well, if I'm, you know, at the time, I, if I'm not carrying a gun and I'm not shooting someone, then I'm probably not going to have anything in my hands. Makes and sense. that was really my mindset for a very long time. But at this point, I do see the value of like, when you do weapons training, they, they do help you get stronger and they do help you see longer lines and see different ways that an attack can go well and go badly like with those different shapes that are now suddenly attached to your body. But it's still, it's just, I don't know. It's never been my super big interest. I've been happy with my empty-handed training. Oh, that's good. And kind of talk about, you, you mentioned in the email that you've, you've taken a couple trips to Okinawa. Talk about that a little bit and what that experience was like. Yes. So that was, both trips were fascinating. The first trip in 2008 um, was courtesy of a woman named Peggy Hess, who's a very passionate Weichiru practitioner. And she organized what she called a women's karate tour. And there were 30 of us from all over the world, all over the U.S. and Germany and Canada. And we, we landed on Okinawa and a big, took up a big school bus. And we would go visit all of these different Weichiru Karate Dojo. And, you know, the Okinawans are such a generous and kind people. And these, these teachers, there was like two dozen of them who would, at various points over the two weeks, they would take time off of work. Some of them met us at the airport and would drive us places and invite us into, and, and in Okinawa, the dojo are often in their home. Right? So they're inviting you into their home um, and watching their eyes go wide when more and more of us kept filtering into their home because, you know, you say 30 people and then 30 people actually show up and it's a lot of people. They were all so very generous in their instruction. And, you know, it, it's something that I think is a really important concept in Okinawan martial arts is the idea that karate comes through you, not to you, that you're just you're just holding it and passing it on to the next generation. And the Okinawans were trying so hard to make sure that we could capture everything they were trying to give us, you know, and 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 it really struck me when we would go train at their homes and then they would say, now we go beer, make friendship. And I was like, what? <laughs> this, this sounds fantastic. Go beer, make friendship. And so after they had, you know, put out their families by having us in their home for two and a half hours, they would then invite us to dinner at their homes or at a friend's home who had a bigger backyard. And then we would sit there for two or three hours and they would feed us and we would drink beer and, and we would have cultural exchange. We would tell stories back and forth and ask questions. And to them, this was just as important as the training, right? The idea that, that the karate dojo is part of community and you build community when you train and you build community after you train. And they would, oh my goodness, they would make these homemade Okinawan donuts that have sweet potato in them. They're called andagi, Ooh. which were amazing. And then we had them for like five days in a row because <laughs> <laughs> they were so kind to keep cooking us these fried donuts. And, you know, one of the senior teachers there, a guy named Shinkoku Tara, who's a 10th degree black belt in Weichiru. Uh, when I went back to Okinawa in 2012, he, he, he said to me, he said, don't be selfish with what you have learned. And it just, it just really reminded me that if you, if, you know, if you choose to train, train all you want, but if you choose to teach, you know, you're, you're taking on this other responsibility of trying to make sure that other people get what you got and, and, and do the best you can in doing that. 
That sounds like someone. I know I've had so many opportunities to potentially take a trip to Korea with my instructor, and it's just never worked out. So I've never been able to go. And and after studying martial arts for almost thirty seven years, <laughs> I've never gone to another country that's a home of one of the martial arts I've studied. So I'm hoping maybe at some point I'll be able to. It just sounds like a blast. I'll cross my fingers for you because it was. I mean, we we had a special trip. We got to train with ten different teachers. You know, sometimes wow. there's like this cultural thing where you can only go train with the teacher in your lineage or mm-hmm. whatever. People get grumpy. We didn't have that at all. And so we got to see such a variety of approaches to doing the same art, you know, and interpretations and the fact that each of these teachers who were spending time with us was choosing to run a dojo. And, you know, in Okinawa, karate is not a sport so much as a discipline. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of the idea that you if you choose a discipline, if it's tea ceremony or calligraphy or whatever, it's something you're going to do every day. And so they don't necessarily say that, that I, I'm going to go work out. They say, I'm going to go discipline my body and my mind. Okay. And that was a really, that's a really nice concept, you know, because in, in the U.S., sometimes we think of self-care as an indulgence, if you will. Right. But for Okinawans, it's like, no, no, this is just part of the discipline. This is part of what you need to do every day yourself. Um, and you've picked karate to do it. Yeah, and that's actually the website. I, that's how I found you is through that uh, women's tour website. <laughs> that's you were mm-hmm. one of the ones I found on there. But so curious. So when you took that, that trip back then, at the time you were a documentary filmmaker, did you happen to bring a camera and get any footage when you were there? Or was that not even on your mind at the time? You know, I took stills. And at the time I had a digital camera and now the quality is so low, they would probably only make good little avatars or something. Yeah, I, so I kind of intentionally didn't because I knew if I did that, I wouldn't really be on the trip. Ah, okay. Um, Makes sense. And there was, there was a guy who came down from Tokyo who filmed for a couple of days and I do have a DVD from that. Oh, cool. But for me, you know, I, I do live by the admonishment that once you have a camera in your hand, you're changing what you're remembering and what you're seeing and doing. Um, And so I, I, I didn't do it on purpose. Oh, that's a good way to look at it. So, so being a school owner, being an instructor, let's say someone approached you, a, a friend, family member, something that said, Hey, I'm thinking of getting involved in martial arts, or I'm thinking of maybe putting my kids in martial arts. What are some tips and advice you'd give them? Maybe things to look for in a school or instructor, and maybe some things to avoid. Sure. Well, one of the first things to look for is um, convenience, right? Is it mm-hmm. actually someplace you're going to go on a regular basis? <laughs> <laughs> because right. unless you're really passionate, if it's too far away and too much of a drive, you're not going to. And then the the second thing I, I tell people to look for is just how are people being treated? You know, are are people being respectful of each other just because they're people? You know, karate is supposed to begin and end with respect. And I remember I walked into this one school once and I was told that if I had a teacher of the of the of the head instructor, that I could ask them and they would take my question to the head instructor and then bring me back the answer. And that to me is a big red flag, right? If they've, if they've gotten the idea that different rank equals different human value, then that's a dangerous premise. And, and I would stay away from a school like that myself because, you know, we're all just people and it doesn't matter what colored belt you have around your waist. You want to make sure that everybody's being treated in, in the same kind of respectful and safe manner. And then the last thing to look for is like our, one of the things I look for is are people like, is everybody putting on a knee brace or is are people wearing elbow braces? Like are people walking around injured in training? Then you got to ask yourself, maybe I should find out. Is it, did they get hurt doing something else like skiing or did they get hurt in dojo? <laughs> that's actually, that's one no one's ever mentioned before. That's a good one. See that, that, you know, for me though, that I'm, I'm the one who I'm putting on the knee brace, but my knee brace was from a kickball injury in high school 30 years ago. 
See, <clears throat> it's never karate. Is it? <laughs> I, honestly, the the most serious injury. Well, I sprained my ankle one time in class. Otherwise, I broke a toe. That was it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, you know, everything else has been you know I mean back issues, but that's not just from martial arts. That's from you know, being forty seven years old <laughs> and having right. We're not nineteen issues. anymore, Brian. What happened? <laughs> exactly. So curious at your school, the Washington Karate Academy. Do you guys offer like free trial lessons and stuff for people to come try it out? We do. We offer two free classes, and okay. we just started going back in person post COVID here about a month ago. Cool. Um, and so yeah, people, you don't need a uniform or anything. Just come on by, show up, bring wear a mask right now. And, and then after a couple of classes, we can figure out if what we do is a match for what folks are looking for. Nice. I'm, I might actually try to convince my oldest son to come check it out because he actually moved to Arlington a couple of weeks ago. Okay. That's a whole nother story. But he, he uh, got up to his third degree junior black belt in, in traditional Taekwondo before he had to, you know, he quit just because of other interests. And I've always mm-hmm. wanted him to get back involved in martial arts. And I know, I know he misses it, but he also has always had a crazy schedule, but I'm hoping if he gets out there and gets a normal, normal nine to five job, maybe he can get back into something like that. So who knows? I may, I may send him your info. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> please send, please send him along. What my teacher used to say is that uh, people don't move away from martial arts. They move towards something else. Yep, that is true. All, all three of my kids, they, you know, stopped at one point and then my daughter's trying to get back into it, hopefully. So, so now being in a, mainly a traditional martial art for, for 30 years, what are your thoughts on MMA and the UFC? And are you a fan? So I like to watch UFC fights because I like to watch them for the same reason I like to watch the TV show cops. I love to see what people <laughs> do when they're under pressure. I nice. love to see how they stress out. I love to see what choices or mistakes happen even in really well-trained people okay. because I, it's a cautionary tale for me. And so I, I, you know, fight sport has been a part of human culture forever. And so I don't think that's ever going away. Right. I think that we are bigger and stronger and more fit than we have ever been in history. And so I think it's really, really more important than ever before that matchups are based on size and weight so that there's a chance for it to be competitive. Right. And so I, I think it's great, you know, for women to choose to get into the sport. You know, I think the risk for women is our necks aren't very strong compared to men, right? There's not as much muscle there. And so there's a lot more risk of head and neck injury um, and doing the same kind of combative sports. And we just, you know, it, I, I think if you go in with eyes wide open, that's your choice. But I, I really get concerned when there are matchups between different sized people. I don't really care about gender, right. but if you have a really big human and a much smaller human, the risk when at level of that is going to shoot up quickly. And so that I, I, I think it's all fine, right? As long mm-hmm. as people know what they're in for and what they're doing it for. My concern is people throwing small children into full contact situation with yeah. elbow cranks and knee cranks and stuff like that. Because there's no reason to trash your joints at 10 and 12 years old. Yeah, I don't get know? that. That one surprises me. So I assume then you probably weren't a fan of the original few UFCs when there was like no rules and no weight classes and stuff. <laughs> yeah, the- the no, so the no weight classes, I think, is just yeah. silly, right? I don't, I don't even see how the attorneys signed off on that. I mean, um, back, then, <laughs> back then, I could see because they knew... The, the bigger opponents literally had no ground game, so they had no shot <laughs> for the most part. Right. It, it was a plan. But, I mean, nowadays you couldn't get away with it. I mean, other countries, I, I know, still do it, but I know it's not allowed in the U.S. So Right. And, it, I, you know, I have this one memory of this guy who walked into a UFC match. He was wearing, like, one boxing glove because he was a boxer, but he wanted one hand that wasn't in a boxing glove. Yeah, that was, and- uh, what was his name? Jim, Jimmers? Um, I can't remember. Yeah, he was, like, a pro boxer. 
And yeah, mm-hmm. and he wanted that he wanted to wear one glove so his other hand could be free for like holding. I'm like, this is not going to go well. <laughs> that was I think you right. it was either UFC one or two, but I'm, yeah. I yeah I remember that. <laughs> yeah, so I think I think the sports matured in a lot of ways, but I oh, think yeah. you know again, fight sport is always just that it's going to be violent and it's and it's going to be risky, and so um, that's one of the reasons I think I, I stick with traditional training. It is well, traditionally go. a little safer. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So if you had to pick one martial artist to put at the top of your list for someone you truly admire, whether it's someone you've actually met and trained with or whether it's, you know, like a celebrity martial artist, like a Bruce Lee type person, could you could you pick just one? Could I pick just one? And if you can, um, you know, so, so most of my guests pick two or three, but if you can pick one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so one of the people that I admire most is a gentleman out of Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo, Michigan named James Thompson. And he is a Wei practitioner. He's a, ooh, I think he's a 10th degree black belt now. Oh, and he, he's a, he was a special forces in Vietnam. Okay. And, but what he has tried to do over several many years is be the best transmitter of Wei that he can be. And he trained directly under Kanai Weichi, who was the son of the guy who founded the system. Okay. And so he had direct experience in Okinawa. Um, he speaks Japanese. He lived there for a few years while he was on base. And he is consistent of character. He is generous in what he does. He is absolutely lethal and devastating. You know, when you stand across from someone that you know has probably killed a number of people and they're telling you, I suggest you do it this way. Maybe you should listen to them. <laughs> Idea. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he, he is someone I admire also just because of uh, coming up in the martial arts. You know, there's a time and a place when people are welcoming and a time and a place when they aren't. And I think it's been a lesson for me of, you know, train hard, put good training forward. And then sometimes that can help break down some of the, the social barriers that people might have in their heads of what might separate us that might not actually. That's a good answer. So in all your years of martial arts, is there a philosophy you've learned that is really important to you? You keep coming back to one that you like teaching your students. The philosophy that keeps coming back to me is train to train. And I think it, that's because if you, if you train to do a hundred pushups or train to do um, a kick over your head or train to get a black belt, once you get it, did your reason to train just leave you? And the story I, I really want to share is that there's a woman who joined our dojo several years ago and, you know, she was training with us. Um, she hadn't been there for all that long. And she told us that she wanted to train because she had to travel for work and she was often by herself and wanted to learn self-defense. And then she, you know, she, she stuck with it and she stood up there. She got her green belt, you know, after about six, seven months and Then she pulled me aside and let me know that one of the reasons that she had joined the dojo was because her husband had become abusive and she was trying to figure out if she had the courage to leave him. And after she had her green belt test and she had to stand up there and do her forms by herself and stand up there and and do free fighting, she actually did. She took her son and she left her husband and went on to build a safer life. And you know what? She, she left the dojo not long after that, Mm -hmm. but in my mind, she got the black belt she needed. That's right? cool. She got the mindset that she needed to put herself and her son's safety first and, and to make the change that she needed to do. And 
to this day, I am proud of her, you know? Oh, yeah, I would be too. That's awesome. <laughs> and so I think, I think as a teacher, it's understanding that martial arts gives different things to different people at different times. It gives me different things at different times and, and to be open and accepting of that. And that's why you just focus on the training because you don't know what it is someone is training for really. Mm-hmm. And it's not up to the teacher to decide that for a student, right? People come in the door with their own needs. And the best we can do is, is make an environment how do I say it? There's a phrase in acupuncture called nourishing destiny, right? Okay. So we can do our best to nourish their destiny and students and help them get to the best place they can get. To. Very cool. I love that. That's great. All right. Got a few fun ones to wrap things up. First of all, do you have Ooh. a favorite martial arts book? My favorite martial arts book is Meditations on Violence by Rory Miller. Okay. And I highly recommend anybody in the martial arts read it. And I think he'd be a fabulous guest for you, Brian. Um, because Rory really opened my eyes as someone who he had been a law enforcement officer. He has seen a lot more violence than I have seen in life. Um, and he is also a traditional martial artist. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, he was really able, and he's a, he's an author and writer and has written several books now and he does in-person seminars. And he was the one who taught me that that really important lesson about students shouldn't please you shoot students should know what they're what what they're training for and and own their own training very cool i will definitely write that down and and check it out and see if i can get them on the show that'd be cool all right so now you said you started college in 91 so you're you're around my age and so that means you're a kid of the kid of the 80s so i'm wondering mm-hmm. do you have a favorite martial arts video game Did, were you ever a gamer oh am i still a gamer nice. yes indeed okay okay <laughs> Yeah, you know, so I played Karateka with my brother. Nice. I'm sure you remember. Oh yeah, I love that, that game. game. That's awesome. For some reason, it's particularly satisfying when you got to pick the bird. I don't know why. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so that that was a game I enjoyed quite a bit. I honestly can't stomach the modern Mortal Kombat. It's too bloody and gory for yeah. me. And and not enough just cheesy martial arts fighting. <laughs> like the original one, yep. Like the original. Yep. So, you know, I still I still have to say I'll, I'll hold up Karateka as my, you know, favorite classic. I, I um, just looked it up to see. I had to just Google it to see if it was the one I was thinking of. And yes, it was. I had that on my Commodore 64. Yes. I bet you did. That's... I had it on an Acer of some kind. <laughs> nice. That's so awesome. I love that. I think it was when we still had a monochrome screen. Yep. I think I had a, yeah, mine was a 13 inch black and white TV on my Commodore 64. So I didn't have color at the time, but yeah, I remember that mm-hmm. it came out in 1984. So, okay. How about favorite martial arts TV show? Favorite martial arts TV show. So that's a tough one because, you know, I kind of mix up martial arts and sci-fi in my head. Okay. And so I was particularly pleased when the new Battlestar Galactic came out and Starbuck was played by kick-ass woman and I thought it was just rocking good television but I think that when I think about martial arts tv shows you know it's it's hard to get away from the fact that Cobra Kai is very popular right now and on television and while I you know I've watched a couple of seasons of it and we enjoy it there is uh, I do have to shut off part of my martial arts brain because some of the some of the martial arts as a as a traditional martial artist feels a little bit like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers um (laughs) but I do, you know, my son watches a lot of anime. And so I see a lot of martial arts in those anime cartoons yeah. that he's watching. And a, and a lot of that training to be sometimes looks like the old Hong Kong cinema. You yeah. know, it looks like how how those fights used to be. So I don't have a, a show really that I'm watching right now, but I I love it whenever there's martial arts on TV. Yeah. I, see, and me, I, I, I love Cobra Kai, but I always, when favorite ones, I always go to the old school. I go to some 80s ones, you know, like the original Kung Fu in the 70s or... 
uh, if you remember the TV show, The Master in the early 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, about a ninja. Highlander is another good one. I mean, and although for current one, I did like Into the Badlands. That one has. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, that one has some great fight scenes. A lot of sword stuff. A lot of good martial arts. Yeah, so that that one I think it was three or four seasons before they cancel it. And if you like uh, another fun one is Woo uh, Woo Assassins. I think it's called on Netflix. Okay, was a good one. And then there was the. Warrior Nun on, on Netflix. Oh, Warrior Nun was great. Yeah, yeah. They're going to do a second season of that. Oh, are they? Awesome. Cool. Yes. Very, it got really a green light for a second season. Nice. Yes. That was, that had excellent staff fighting. Yeah. So a lot of the, a lot of the stuff I like. I like some of the current stuff and I like the old stuff. And I still watch Warrior Nuns of the old stuff when I can too. So, all right. How about favorite martial arts movie? My favorite martial arts movie. Oh, I should have prepared. So... I, from, as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. I have to say, I still love Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Nice. Okay. Um, because it is gorgeous cinematically. It's allegorical. It's got crazy good fight scenes in it. So that one, that one is good. Um, we did really just enjoy um, The Legend of, of Shang-Chi that oh, was just great. released yes. from Marvel. Great movie. Because, you know... I don't know if you've noticed, but martial artists can take themselves too seriously sometimes. (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) So I really appreciated the sort of tongue-in-cheek tone to that movie just because of that. Because every other movie in that tradition was mostly serious if it wasn't a Jackie Chan film, right? Yep. So did you, since you mentioned kind of tongue-in-cheek, have you seen the new movie, The Paper Tigers? I have not yet. Watch that. I think you'd get a kick out of it. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's entertaining. It's, it's funny, but it's also serious. So it's got the nice mixture of, of comedy and drama, but it, I saw the trailer and I'm like, I have to watch this. And yeah, it, it, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. Okay. I will make a note. Okay. So final question. So definitely want to ask you this one with, with your filmmaking background, kind of on the same line as favorite martial arts movie, but more specifically, is there a movie that you think has the best realistic martial arts fight scene? doesn't necessarily have to be a martial arts movie and i'm like you know one of my favorites is like the the born identity you know with matt damon some of those fight scenes in there so is there a movie that you think stands out that just has an amazing fight scene an amazing fight scene realistic amazing fight scene you could could see it and think i could see that happening in real life right so one of the first films i thought that ever had that was the french film called the professional oh yes um that was about an assassin Mm -hmm. right and there were a few horrendously brutal, very quick fights in that film. <laughs> yes, there were. <laughs> so that's up there. Um, they did have a couple of, of short, realistic ones in Fight Club um, yeah. that met that bar. Shh, don't, um, and, and, don't talk and about that. And this is where you... <laughs> that's right, you can't talk about that. So I guess I'm a little bit biased, right? Because the best fight scenes for me are short. <laughs> because real fights don't usually go for three and a half minutes over four exactly. buildings. See, and that's why I like kind of like the Jason Bourne ones, like when he's in the park with those two cops and he literally, it's like seven seconds. He takes out two guys or like the perfect weapon with Jeff Speakman, same type thing. He takes out three guys and like, you know, with like six moves. So mm-hmm. <laughs> a little more realistic type things. I like those ones like that. Yeah. Like if you, if you take the first John Wick film and take like, you know, 15 second intervals of some of the fights, yes, then, then many of those things are pretty accurate, but, Putting them all together in a seven-minute sequence is <laughs> a little overwhelming. That is true. 
Nice. Well, Dana, I just want to thank you, man. This has been so much fun. I've, I've loved hearing your story. And like I said, I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, give your uh, school name and information to my son and see if I can give him a little push. <laughs> if he can, I'd, I'd, Absolutely. I'd, love, I'd love him to get back into martial arts. I know. He, I, I don't know if he, how he'd feel about starting over again, but you know, it's, I'd, I'd love him to do it. I know, I know he misses it. So who knows? We'll see. But seriously, I just I, thank you. This has been so much fun. I loved hearing it. And I will, I'll put a link for your school in the show notes and any other links you want me to add in there, I can do that. And it, it's just been a, a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, Brian, I really appreciate it. I've had a great time and absolutely do send me your son's name. And I will uh, send you the link of this episode should uh, air in about two or three weeks. I got to look at my schedule of what I have to edit yet, but it should be less than two or three weeks. It should be out there. So, okay, cool. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.